When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It, where we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. I was thinking today about the millions of college students on campus for the first time this fall and what their career journeys may look like. While some of them may change majors more times than mom and dad want to entertain, others will be laser-focused on their futures from day one. We've all heard stories of successful entrepreneurs who got their start in their college dorm rooms. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and Liz Elting. The last name on the list you might not have heard of, but we are honored that she's here with us today. Liz Elting is the founder of TransPerfect, now the world's largest translation company, which she launched in an NYU dorm room in 1992 without any outside funding. Her mission was simple to provide the highest quality language services to leading organizations worldwide. The company now has over a billion dollars in revenue and has offices in more than 100 cities worldwide. Liz has been on the Forbes list of the world's richest self-made women every year since its inception in 2016. And she's here with us today to give us some insight into her journey. Liz, I'm so happy you could join us today. And I wanna start by trying to understand what inspired you at such a young age to start a company. I know it wasn't your first job out of business school, but how did this extraordinary thing come about? Thank you so much, Karen, and I am so honored to be here. So thank you for having me. So what happened was growing up, I was fortunate to to live in a number of countries, three countries growing up. And by the time I had graduated from college, I had studied four languages. I lived in Portugal, Canada, and the U.S. growing up, and I was able to study Portuguese, French, Spanish, and Latin by the time I had graduated from high school. And the one thing I knew was I loved languages. I did my junior year in Spain, and I worked in Venezuela right after college, and then came to New York City at age 21, a million years ago. Then I was fortunate to get a job at a translation company, which at the time was the largest in the industry. Tell us what a translation company does. Sure. Great question. And this was in the late 80s. And what happened was I found out about this translation company. But what they did is basically anything a company needs in a foreign language, they do. Or that's what our company did, both the company I had worked at and then the company I eventually started. So anything from if a Fortune 500 needs their annual report translated into 20 languages, translating, editing, proofreading, typesetting, and that's basically what they did. So that was 
the type of business that I was super excited about. I found this translation company as soon as I arrived in New York. And fortunately, I was able to get a job there. I actually was really interested in sales, but they didn't have anything available. So I took a job in production and figured I could move over to sales. And that's precisely what I did. So I worked first in production and then in sales and loved the industry, loved the company, loved the culture, but thought it could be done better. I was thinking, okay, we could do things faster. A client would call up and say, okay, I need this five-page document translated. How long will it take? And I would need to say a week, or maybe at the time it was three to five days. But I knew from my time in production, it could be done in one or two days if that's what they really needed. That was one thing. Another was quality, needed to provide the best quality. Another thing was a real one-stop shop. At the time, we could only provide certain deliverables. And back then, it was Microsoft Word and WordPerfect. That was not sufficient. And then I also thought the client needed a local presence because clients were around the world, and I could envision a company with offices around the world. And then finally, within the company, it was always production versus sales versus production. And I thought there needs to be a kind of uniform company mentality, not this infighting in the company. So I tucked all that in the back of my head and then went to business school. It was a relatively flat organization, so I thought, I'm not going to grow at that company, so I will go to B school and get the business background because I was a language major in undergrad, and I thought, I really need the business background. So that's precisely what I did. So I know you went to business school and then felt, you know what, I have this business school degree. I need to go out and make money. So you put that aside and decided to get a more traditional Wall Street job that paid more money. How did that go? Yes, that's exactly what I did. And I think the reason was, even though I had loved the translation industry, I thought, here, I have my MBA from Stern. 70% of the people who go to Stern major in finance. That was the case back in 1992. And they want these jobs in investment banking. They want Goldman Sachs. They want those types of jobs. And I had no money. <laughs> I thought, that's how I'm going to make money. I was ambitious. I thought, that's lucrative. And obviously, there's something super interesting about it because that's what everyone wants to do. It's sexy, right? So that was the idea. I ended up getting a job at the proprietary trading division of a French bank. And I thought, okay, this works because I want to try out finance and I love languages and all that's international. That's so the French piece of it. And it was doing equity arbitrage, or that's what I thought it would be doing. So I showed up and the first day I realized I am the only woman in this role or in a role like this. And whenever the phone rang, the guys would yell, Liz, phone. <laughs> and there I was with my MBA and I thought, not what I had intended. And then I remember, I thought, okay, I'll just do better. I'll work better. I'll work harder than everyone else. And I would come in at 7, 7.30 in the morning, work till midnight, and try to learn everything I could and do better. And I remember going to my boss and I said, okay, I finished everything. What else can I do? And he said, you can go look in the supply closet, see what <laughs> supplies we need, and then walk around and ask each of the guys what they need. I just thought, oh, come on. <laughs> but then the other big piece of it is I knew I loved the language industry, and I was number crunching. That's what I was doing. I was putting numbers into spreadsheets and doing paperwork. And it was all so different from what I had loved about the translation industry, which was working with other languages, working with talented linguists, and solving clients' problems. So I just thought, I don't really want anybody's job here. This does not look like a good time. So why not now? 
I was 26 years old, and I have this idea, and I loved the industry, and it was my aha moment. I thought, that's what I was going to do. I love the Liz phone. Um, (laughs) I know you have a new book out, which I actually read over the weekend, Dream Big and Win, Translating Passion into Purpose and Creating a Billion-Dollar Business, which is exactly what you did. Tell us how you started this. You're with your boyfriend. You're living in the dorm at NYU and have next to no money. But you had this dream. What happened after that? As I said, I was miserable in finance, so it was an easy call to do that. But I thought to myself, okay, I have no money. How on earth are we going to do this? Because I really had virtually nothing. I had my life savings was a few thousand dollars from the jobs I had since I was very young. And then I think maybe I got a credit card advance of about $5,000 somewhere along the line, but really no money. And I thought, we are not in a position to work on getting funding. We don't have time to create this complicated business plan or even not so complicated business plan and then pitching investors. We just need to sell. So that's precisely what I focused on from day one. And Back then, it was a case of making 300 phone calls in a day, sending out 300 letters to the people I found who could potentially use our service, and doing it every day for an extended period of time and scaling the company based on that strategy. And it was interesting because back in the day when we were in the dorm room, I thought there were some crazy things that happened. And I thought one thing was I remember after a day working crazy hours, went to get some coffee to kind of wake myself up, opened the coffee maker, about 100 cockroaches just streamed out. Oh, my God, I got to get out of this dorm room. And then what happened is clients back then kept showing up, our first client, then our second client, showing up wanting to check out the office. So I knew we needed to be out of that office and quickly. So that really made me think, okay, I've got to set a goal. And by the end of six months, we need to have enough revenue to be able to pay for our first office. And that relates to what I was starting with. It was all about sales. It was sales, setting goals and making sure I accomplished those goals. It was the goals related to revenue to get there, but it was the actions each day that I needed to make sure I took to meet our goals. And precisely at the end of six months, we were able to move into our first office. So who was your first client? What was that first yes? Yes, I remember it well. Their name was DLS. What that was short for was Domovsky Lawyer Service. So it was a tiny law firm in lower Manhattan. And I remember they called up and they said, okay, we have a three-page document. It needs to be translated into Slovak. And I said, Sure, not a problem. And we can do that in three days. That was, I think, what they needed. And they said, great. And then I hung up the phone and I was just wowed. I was overjoyed because this was after many thousands of phone calls and many thousands of letters, that first job. And it was just the best feeling because I thought, we are on our way. And then the crazy thing was that very first client, then when I called them up to say, your project is ready, we'll messenger it over, they said, oh, no, we'll come to your office and we'll check out the operation. I thought, oh, boy. So I remember running down to the dorm room lobby and just intercepting them before they got past the security guard and up to the dorm room. Anyway, that was our first client. Okay, so you're on your way. And I know you have a philosophy about who you want to hire. But I know also from your book, you had some misfires 
in hiring, which is a common mistake, but growing pain that everyone goes through when they try to build a company like yours. What do you think about when you think about some of those first hires? Where did it go wrong? Yes. Part of it was we were working so hard on sales, as I mentioned, and just smiling and dialing and thinking, we've got to be able to get out of this dorm room, and then we've got to be able to grow this company. Early on, and I remember one of the first ones, it was in the first office we had, which was an executive suite situation. That was a very cost-effective way to have an office. Of course, now people could work remotely and Having an office address might not be so important, but back then it was. So we had this office on Park Avenue South, 315 Park Avenue South, and we hired this woman who was a very talented linguist. We needed a talented Spanish linguist, and I thought, great, we found one, but we all had to empty the garbage back then. That was just part of how it worked in that executive suite. I was doing it, my partner was doing it, and our couple employees were doing it. And she said, oh, no, I I don't empty garbages. (laughs) Kind of realized right there, that's not going to work. That shows a whole attitude, mentality, values. We all had to pick up trash on the floor. We all had to do whatever was necessary. So that was a case of it's not just about skills. Of course, you want certain skills that you need for the job. You also want a threshold level of intelligence. But then you need other things. And those are attitude, motivation, hunger and then someone with a real work ethic. And we learned that quickly. Unfortunately, I had to let her go and then had some other stories of things that went wrong that I learned from, but they were growing pains. I learned a lot. Sometimes I hired the wrong person, and sometimes it was because I didn't have the right system set up to incentivize people. And sometimes it was just, yeah, I made a hiring mistake. We're going to get to how you hired the stars, but we're going to take a quick break. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. And we're back, and I'm speaking with Liz Elting, founder of TransPerfect and one of Forbes' richest self-made women. Okay, so growing your business, you need some stars. What was your philosophy about how you would attract them? Who were you looking for? Yes, absolutely. And that was really the key because in the early days, and the first couple of years, we didn't have employees because we didn't have 
money to pay for those employees. And it was all about sales, bringing in the revenue to pay for our first employees. Then it was a case of finding like-minded, ambitious, entrepreneurial people who wanted to work at our company. And we would work hard on selling the vision. And then these people had to be excited about the vision. As far as how we found them, we found them the ways we people found employees back then. But what we were looking for is people who would take a risk with us. And back then, we started the company with no money, as I said, and we had minimal expenses. And basically, everything we, every penny we made virtually, we put back into the company. But we needed people who could do something similar. And I remember we would hire people for a low draw. And this was actually our strategy the whole 26 years, but a high upside. So if they weren't selling, they wouldn't cost the company much. But if they were selling, they would make a lot more than they would at our competition and possibly in any sales job that they would ever get. So that was critical. So they needed to be willing to take the risk with us. And I remember once I interviewed someone and I I thought I was selling him on it and it was actually to open one of our offices in another city. And I said, this is how we do. We'll pay you this draw. But if you sell, you'll get this percent of revenue. And it was a high percent of revenue. And that commission never sunsets. That was the other piece of it we did. On job one, you get your percentage, 10%, and on job 1,000 and on job 2,000 for that same client. That was very important. And he said, wow, that sounds like such a wonderful opportunity. I'll do it without the draw. Now, not everybody can do that. But if you find that type of person, you're on your way. And so that was really interesting. And people like that idea because then not only could they make good money, but they could have a team under them. So people who are very entrepreneurial, they may start as a sole salesperson, but their goal was to have a 50-person or 100-person team under them. And a lot of them were able to do that. I totally get the passion in wanting to be able to create your own fortune for each of those employees. I did think it was interesting. You said you liked people who had student debt because they were really hungry, which is what you're looking for. Is oh, absolutely. Hungry. Absolutely. And by the way, just with the student debt, I will tell you, we were so broke. I talked about the little money I had, but my boyfriend that I started the company with, who became my fiance, and then we broke up, he had $90,000 of grad school debt. So when we made money, the first big thing we did with it was pay off his school debt. But I did like people who had school debt or they had worked through college or grad school or whatever. I mean, through their younger years, through their teenage years, because they were hungry and they wanted to make money. And above all, they were going to work hard. We were looking for people who were proactive, curious, hard workers with the right values. And the other thing I've noticed is when people have encountered adversity, often they're better employees, right? People who have been given things, money, and everything's been so easy, they often aren't going to do what it takes. And we were looking for people who had worked hard and had even maybe experienced some adversity, and that tended to produce the best results. Okay, I want to go back to what you said a minute ago about you started this business with your boyfriend, then fiancé, and then you broke up. All during this time that you are running this business together. How did you manage that? That seems you're working 24-7 practically, and then you've got this emotional... <laughs> turmoil. How did that work? 
Just to give a bit of background, what happened is I talked about how I left the job in finance and I thought, I want to pursue my passion and start a translation company. And just for a moment on that, there were 10,000 other translation companies out there at the time. And the reason I say that, I think it's such an important thing because the thought was, if I'm going to do this, then the goal is to create the largest because they're already out there. It's a fragmented industry. So we need to do it differently and better. My boyfriend at the time was a year behind me in business school. So while I was starting the company, he was finishing up his second year at Stern, although he was doing it with me at night and on weekends and when he wasn't in class. The answer is we did it together because I had the experience. I had this idea based on what I had learned, and he liked the idea of being an entrepreneur, and we were a couple, and we were living together in that NYU dorm room where we were both broke. At first, it worked well because we were a couple and we were working 24-7. I mean, we were at least 100, 120 hours a week. So when we had to sacrifice on our personal lives, on going out for drinks with friends at night or going to doing something fun on the weekend, we couldn't do that. But we had each other. So that was helpful initially until <laughs> first we got engaged, then we broke up then it was quite a situation. It was rocky the whole time we grew our company, but our company was our baby. So neither of us wanted to let it go. We had literally been business partners for five years, at which point the engagement broke up, but we weren't going to let the company fall apart. But it was challenging. It was rocky. And there was a lot of drama. So one of the things in your book you talk about is a shareholder agreement and why that is so important for any founder or co-founders. Tell us about not having one. Yes, because we were boyfriend and girlfriend when we started the company, and as I said, we had no money. He had his debt, and I barely had a thing. We did not hire an attorney. We did not hire an accountant, and we started a company. So as a result, we did not have a proper shareholders agreement. And my advice to anyone starting a company, no matter how little money you have, you must have a proper shareholders agreement. I didn't, and I will tell you what ended up happening because of it, but you really need one because it's very important to determine and outline decision-making, dispute resolution, what happens in the event of death, disability, divorce, and, of course, your roles and responsibilities from the get-go. And then finally, an exit strategy and or buy-sell provision. So you need to cover all those things in the shareholders agreement, and we didn't. As I mentioned, we had no money initially, and we had nothing to fight over, and we were just literally thinking, how can we get enough revenue to get out of this dorm room? And then, as time went on, we couldn't agree on a shareholders agreement. Once we were in an office and we had employees, and again, it was all about how do we pay to add more employees and more employees. But the whole time, we could not agree on a proper shareholders agreement. So there we were without one, without those issues addressed, without our roles clearly defined and how decisions were to get made. And it was a lot of fighting, a lot of craziness. During this time, though, the business is booming. The business was growing. So we found ways to deal with it. We would say, OK, you do this, I do this. And we would try that for a period of time. But... On the big things, we had to agree, whether it was big hires, opening new lines of business, acquisitions, big leases. So there were some big decisions that we couldn't just say, you do this, I do that. They weren't. And they became more and more frequent, the issues. So the other 
thing that I recommend not doing is being 50-50 owners with neither of you being the decision maker. And I say, ideally, you if there are two of you, you own more than 50% and you are the decision maker. I think that's so important and it would have prevented a lot of challenges and grief that we had. Ultimately, if I get to what happened after about 20 years is things got very difficult between us and we couldn't agree on some major things every day. And so what I needed to do, and I tried to put together a shareholders agreement again at that point, actually, 21 years into the business. I remember it well. Couldn't agree on anything. So a few months later, I needed to litigate. And what I was asking for was a custodian to be put in charge to resolve deadlock in the short term and oversee the sale of the company in the longer term, whereby I could buy him out, he could buy me out, or a third party could buy us both out just so we were no longer in this horrendous situation because it was affecting everybody. It was affecting the company. It was affecting the employees. It was, it could have been affecting the clients. And I will say, ultimately, I spent about $50 million going through the litigation process and selling the company. And that was obviously not ideal. But the other piece of it is it was painful. It was scorched earth litigation, about 20 different lawsuits going on. And that's a very hard time. And that was a very hard time. It's a very lonely situation. I mean, it's always lonely at the top, but being in that situation, that really took the cake. For that reason, I cannot recommend enough that shareholders agreement and being the decision maker when you're starting a company. Meanwhile, while you're growing this business, I know you ended up getting married. You had two boys. You were trying to balance the work-life balance, but it doesn't seem like that was even realistic at that time. And so you're growing your family and you're growing this business. And when you came to the ultimate conclusion of you wanted to sell the business, what did that feel like after having worked for so much of your life, putting your heart and soul in this? That's right. And I didn't think I was necessarily going to sell. I had thought I might be the buyer. I met with a dozen private equity firms ultimately partnered with Blackstone and was in a bidding situation for the company. But because of a number of things that happened in the final weeks of the auction process, we ended up not buying the company and I ended up selling, which at the time I felt was heartbreaking. I thought, but this is my baby. 26 years, I've given it everything I have. And tried to create my dream company, and we finally had accomplished our goal. I What I didn't mention is when I started the company, as I, I did say there were 10,000 other translation companies out there at the time, and I thought, if we're going to do this, I want it to be the biggest and the best. It wasn't until 2017, after 25 years, we became the biggest. So that goal I had finally accomplished, and then I thought, oh my gosh, in 2018, how can I be selling? But that's how it worked out, and at the time, I was to some degree heartbroken. But shortly after selling, I realized, wow, this was a complete blessing. Now I can focus on all the things I never had time to do or or didn't have time to do over the previous 26 years. And that's what I'm doing now. And I am so incredibly grateful. You sold this very profitable business. You took away several hundred million dollars where you went from having no money and living in a dorm room with cockroaches in a coffee can. (laughs) What does that feel? What do you do with all that money? I know we'll get into your philanthropy, but just the idea of this was such a almost impossible dream, and yet here I am, several hundred million dollars. What do you think about that? 
Yeah. And it's interesting because I think we all want to make enough money where we don't have to worry about how much we're spending. That's a very privileged situation to be in. And so I was, and I am incredibly grateful for that. But at the same time, I thought, okay, there there are not that many things I want, except, boy, was I lucky. Boy, was I lucky. And I saw so many people along the way, and I see now, who aren't so lucky. I was lucky because I was brought up in a background with parents that very much valued education and paid for my undergrad and my grad school, and they supported me emotionally in every way and my education, which was huge. And then, of course, I ended up having wonderful experiences and hiring amazing people to help us build this terrific company. So I was lucky. I was one of the lucky ones. Right place, right time, and hard work. But a lot of people, they're hard workers, but they're not born in a situation like that. And then, of course, the other piece of it is women. I saw a lot of issues with women along the way that were going on in the world where women were not treated as they should be. It was not fair. They were as good or better than men, but they were discriminated against. They were the victims of sexual predators. I mean, there were all kinds of things going on. So I wanted to help with that. And basically, I started a foundation to help focus on supporting and empowering women and people from marginalized communities. And that is really the core mission of my foundation. But what I've also learned as I'm going through it is there are a lot of other causes to focus on because I'm lucky they haven't affected me directly, but they're so important, whether it's heart disease, whether it's cancer, hunger, gun safety, and the list goes on. So I've gotten involved in those as well. And those also can indirectly relate to women in marginalized populations. So that's what I'm doing now. But Related to all of that, because you ask about the money, part of it is writing a check, right? That's what a lot of people can do and do. But I think the other thing we all realize when we start going through that process is that's great, but we want to share our lessons based on what we did right and what we did wrong. And that was actually why I wrote my book. But yeah, so the money issue, it's great to be in this situation, but there are a lot of other things I want to focus on and the sharing the lessons, the talking about entrepreneurship and the helping support other entrepreneurs is so rewarding because one of the other things I feel and I say is entrepreneurship is a great equalizer. And of course, education is the other great equalizer. And so that is a lot of what I'm focusing my time on, educating entrepreneurs. Did you think after leaving your company that it would be hard to find fulfillment in some other way? (laughs) I think I did initially because I think a lot of CEOs go through this, right? Their their ego, right? It's their identity. And you work so hard to get there. They all do. And then it becomes their identity and they're proud of it. And they're excited to talk about it. It's what they're giving their life to, really. And then all of a sudden, you don't have it. And you don't feel like you have the value you did in the world. Yeah, initially I was definitely concerned about it. Do you found you've been able to let that go, the Liz CEO part, and are able to embrace the Liz, how can I help other women? Yes, you put that so well. No, exactly, Karen. That's precisely 
what I did. But I remember in the early days, it was hard. I remember for people who watch the Flintstones, I used to watch the Flintstones. I remember when Fred Flintstone got fired and he was sitting on the park bench. And I remember feeling, I mean, I wasn't fired. I was fortunate to cash out. But you feel like, what is my purpose? I had a purpose every day. And all these people, thousands of people were depending on me directly. They knew me and I was dealing with a lot of them. And yeah, initially it feels so strange and so uncomfortable. And then all of a sudden, I think you embrace it because I found my new purpose, which is I started that company, had a lot of great situations with a lot of careers, a lot of millionaires were created and it was wonderful. But what about the people who just can't get by? The world is not fair, right? The country is not fair. What's going on is not fair is where I feel like I can make a difference. And I got to a point with that where I wasn't really changing people's situations in a big way, the way perhaps I can now. So you're saying more in a structural way, like how can you change the game? Yes, So more people can play. There are so many systemic issues that can't be changed. And I think entrepreneurs change it because they can create very successful companies. I can't change systemic issues in companies. I can't change politics and I can't have an effect on that. But I feel like, okay, economic power is social power. Social power is political power. So by helping people one person at a time, one entrepreneur at a time, we can get there by ultimately changing these systemic issues. But I think it starts with these individuals. We need people like you. We need people who are committed to helping change. I want to get back to one thing. You started your company in the pre-dot-com era, and we are coming out of another dot-com bust, a little different flavor, but basically the same thing. You never took venture capital money. And seems like that really ended up being great for you. Why didn't you? And what would you advise someone now? And I will tell you, so what happened was this. Did not want to spend time on that business plan. Thought, who knows how long it'll take and if we will ever get funding. So instead, focused on sales. And what I didn't really talk about, but what was so important is we hired people as we could afford them. Like, literally, we would bring in a certain amount of revenue, and I thought, okay, we couldn't hire our first salesperson. And then we would say to that person, okay, you sell $50,000 for three consecutive months, and then we can add a person under you. And the two of you sell $120,000 for three consecutive months, and we can hire a third person, and so on. Whereas if you get funding, you're just picking it, and you're hiring a bunch of people with no promise of results, no assurance that you're going to get results. So our strategy of doing it that way worked very well because we didn't spend money we couldn't afford to spend. And I used to say revenue is vanity and profit is sanity because, sure, we needed the revenue, but in the end, that revenue needed to be profitable or we were not going to be able to reinvest in the company and grow the company and take it to the top. This last go-round, VC capital was vanity. Exactly. And it didn't matter whether you made money. You just have to grow So it's amazing that you've done what you've done. It's really an extraordinary story with a lot of highs and lows, but ultimately the highest high, you set out to build the biggest translation company in the world, and you did it. And I've got to say, I'm kind of amazed by that, and I loved hearing about it. I want to get to one last thing, the lightning round, but we're going to take a quick break first. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with our lightning round. You may know this as Would You Rather... And the only challenge is you can't think about the answer. You just have to say whatever comes to your mind at that moment. Europe or Asia? Europe. Bungee jump or skydive? Bungee jump. You say that like, yes, you've done it. I've done it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Be able to hear what everyone else is thinking or speak any language? Speak any language. (laughs) That's a tough one for you because you speak a lot of languages already. Okay. How about, let me change it a little then. Be able to hear what everyone else is thinking or be able to play any instrument? Be able to hear what everybody's thinking. That could be a burden, I think. Yeah. But, That's yeah. the concern, right? <laughs> right. That's yes. the fear. I, I'm not sure I want to know, but yeah. boy, am I curious. <laughs> okay. Would you rather give a speech to a room of 10,000 people or spontaneously start singing a song in a crowded restaurant? Spontaneously start singing a song in a crowded restaurant. Really? Wow. So you don't like public speaking? I actually do like it, but the reason I said that, first of all, 10,000 is huge, and it's hard to connect with everybody with that size because I like it when it's 100, 200, 300, and you're looking at the faces. I enjoy that. But the reason I said the thing about singing is if you read my book. I you like to, that's why <laughs> I, I asked the question. I love singing, <laughs> and I was even at an event where I went, my first book signing that I had last week, they had karaoke. I happen to love singing. Okay. Which would you choose, being the best at a terrible job or being terrible at your dream job? Being the best at a terrible job. (laughs) Uh, Would you rather drive or be driven? Be driven. Good news or bad news first? Good news. Okay. You sound disappointed. Okay. No, that's fine. All right. And fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. Okay. What are you reading now? Oh, boy. The book Roar. I am such a fan of the book Roar by Michael Clinton, and I've been telling everybody about it. It's really interesting and and relevant largely because of my age or perhaps your age. It's basically Roar into the second half of your life before it's too late. And it's the whole concept of we're all living much longer than we did, than our parents did, than our grandparents did. And actually what he says is right now there are about 93 
thousand people in this country over the age of 100. By the year 2050, there'll be about 600,000 over the age of 100. And we'll have had our first person live to 150. So we're all living much longer. And it's about in this next part of your life, living your best life and doing what you've always wanted to do, but you've never done because you did what you should do, because you had kids and you needed to make sure you could pay the bills and whatever else, and how really 50 is the new 30 or 60 is the new 35 and all the things you can do. And it's very inspirational. And I just, and it gives a lot of examples of people who are 50 who are doing amazing things like they're just starting their career. And I just found it so inspiring. I can see given your big change of like, okay, now I did that. Now what do I do next? I can see why you would love that. Okay. One last question for you. What is the best investment you ever made? And what's the worst investment you ever made? And we have a very broad definition of investment. It doesn't need to be an asset or anything. It could be a class. It could be anything. I think for me, because and largely because I was fortunate and worked hard, most entrepreneurs do, it was in myself, right, and my company. And I think that's so key. And we didn't really talk about this, but obviously I focused on myself and what I could do, and then kept reinvesting in the company over and over. Didn't make sure I took out, but it was the opposite, like reinvest to make it so we could take it to the top. And I think myself and my company was ultimately the best investment. And the worst? Basically, what I did a few years ago, and it, it seems so elementary now, but it was after I had cashed out and I had my money in a few different places. And I guess you know the market better than I do, but the end of 2018, when the market just went, yeah, way down, I had my money invested and it went way down and I sold. Now, why on earth would I do that? That was just a very stupid move because, of course, it went way up after that and for the next couple of years. And I was just impatient. And that's where I lost more money than I ever had. Ultimately, it ended up okay, but obviously staying in stocks over an extended period of time is critical and don't be impatient. And, and that's what I learned from that. That's music to my ears. I've stayed through some really bad markets. Yeah. Thank you so much, Liz, for your incredible insight on how to build a billion-dollar business from scratch. Thank you for spending the time with us today. Tell us, where can our listeners learn more about you? Thank you so much for having me here today, Karen. I've loved chatting with you. As far as where people can find out more about me, on my website, lizelting.com. And then as far as my book, Dream Big and Win, Translating Passion into Purpose and Creating a Billion-Dollar Business, it's on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com or anywhere people like to buy books. I would love it if you'd read it. Thank you, Liz. Thank you to you, How She Does It listeners, for tuning in to hear Liz's story. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward.